welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I host this show. I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate your support and being part of the show week in and week out. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. You can check out all of the information of this podcast and other podcasts on my website, www.shadinabhan.com. Today's podcast is about human connections. These are so important in a patient-doctor relationship. And I'm hosting an amazing physician who is uh, also a lung cancer survivor who was diagnosed with lung cancer while he was in medical school. And the story of that physician should be a teaching lesson to all of us because it really illustrates the importance of human connections. Dr. Amish Govindarajan shared this story in the section of the Art of Oncology uh, in the Journal of Clinical Oncology about how he was diagnosed with cancer and what led him to change physicians and oncologists because he did not feel that human connection with the first one. What is this human connection? Sometimes it may be difficult to define. It may be difficult to describe. It may be difficult to illustrate, but you know it when it's there. You know that you have a connection when that connection is there. We take care of patients at the most vulnerable moment in their lives. When patients are diagnosed with life-threatening diseases and with cancer, suffice it to say, it puts everything on the line. And when a patient is trusting the physician at the most vulnerable time in their lives, the physicians need to raise to the occasion. And that rise usually is illustrated by developing the ability to communicate, the ability to care, and sometimes the caring is just way more than simply prescribing a medicine, prescribing a procedure, or prescribing something else. It's the ability to communicate and know exactly what makes this patient tick, what are these patients' needs, and how can the doctor or the healthcare system be part of the solution. I invited Dr. Amit Govindarajan to join me on Healthcare Unfiltered to share his story of chasing milestones, which is a story that, I, like I said, he already published, but you have to hear what he has to say. The grace and humility that he exhibits and illustrates should be also a teaching lesson to all of us. We all can do better helping patients because we are all patients. All of us are patients, current patients, future patients, or previous patients. We are all patients and we must do better to help all of our patients. So I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate you spending some time with Dr. Amish Govindarajan, who is joining this show to share his story with the world and to tell us all how we can be better communicators, better doctors, better physicians, better oncologists, because we owe it to everyone to be better human beings. So thank you, Amish, for coming on this show. I appreciate the fact that you put your vulnerability on the line and you share your story with the entire world. 
Without further ado, Dr. Amish Govindarajan on Healthcare Unfiltered. Now tell me, did I say your last name incorrectly? You can, you can tell. You me. said my name perfectly, Doctor Govindarajan. Is okay, yes. Govindarajan. See, you, the way you said it is the right one. No, I'm actually very <laughs> sensitive about this. I, I, I believe that people need to take the time to know how to pronounce someone else's name, and I think it's important. It's okay to make a mistake, but you ask the person, "How do I actually say it?" Um, but I do believe people must take the time. Now, you may choose call me so-and-so, and that's fine, but uh, you, uh, you you get to decide. Amish, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. Really appreciate it. This is the first time we meet uh, uh, by Zoom, although we've corresponded a couple of times by email, so I appreciate taking the time. I've invited you to the show because you wrote a very emotional and moving piece in the Journal of Clinical Oncology section, The Art of Oncology, and you called it chasing milestones. Yes. Before we get into the piece and what led you to write it, you are a PhD by training and or you're an MD or a PhD or both. I'm an MD, yes. And then you're doing a fellowship at Memorial for Palliative Care and Hospice Medicine, and then you are going to go back to do hematology oncology fellowship. Yes, yes, because I feel that this metric is really important, this intersection of supportive care and oncology of meeting the metrics on improving patients' quality of life. So uh, that's kind of gonna be my lens of research um, in the future and focusing on those quality of life metrics. Was your decision influenced by your personal story, by what you have actually gone through over the past several years? Absolutely. Um, I think that my decision to go down this path of focusing on effective communication and also focusing on cancer patients has always been paramount to who I am and in my constitution after when I started residency. And I think that it's only highlighted and augmented it more as I've worked at City of Hope, that this is the metric or this is the place or arena where I feel that I would love to give myself to, which is focusing on this mismetric of understanding how do we improve patients' quality of life that are ongoing with their cancer treatment and their cancer journey, and how do we support them during this process? Because as we all know that medications and treatment landscape is rapidly advancing and patients are now living beyond the PFS, beyond the overall survival. And so from that lens, we need to be focusing also on cancer survivorship of how they're going to cope, not only to the patient, but also to the family member as well. Tell us a little bit uh, how this all started, because obviously, you know, uh, you said your personal story influenced how you actually um, uh, decided career what your career path will be. You yourself were diagnosed with a form of cancer. Yes, yes. Um, when I was completing, I was in the middle of my medical school education, and I remember I had this incessant cough that, you know, was not being you know, after 
extensive, you know, treatment with antibiotics and whatnot, it still was unrelenting. Eventually it, a CT scan actually happened and uh, of my chest and it showed a cafeteria lesion, which for, for extensive bronchoscopy and whatnot, I eventually ended up with the diagnosis of stage four non-specific lung cancer. And at that point and at that moment, stage four, stage four. So it was gone. It has gone elsewhere. Yes, there was um, just by the fact that there was a pleural effusion and there was some miliary seating as well in the right lung. It kind of actually was already diagnosed with stage four at the time. And through, through that whole process and that whole journey, it was, it, it flipped my whole life around of what was really important, what was what, what was the things that I needed to do to survive. And so I was really fortunate, even my uh, first oncologist, he was very pragmatic and very, very practical speaking. But I think that what happened was in my story was that I still wasn't feeling heard in that, in that, in that piece of focusing on the treatment plan, but also understanding where I was in the situation of my life. And I think that um, was very distinctly different. And so when I so tell, went- Tell me a little bit about this. You got diagnosed with stage four non-small cell lung cancer and you were referred mm -hmm. to an oncologist. So you went to see the medical oncologist. How was your first visit or your second visit? Because uh, what you're saying is you did not feel he was hearing you. Can you elaborate a little bit on that and how was the conversation? What did you, what, what actually happened? Well, I think that from my perspective, I think that he saw me as a colleague because I was a medical student. And so he was very pragmatic and um, kind of just focused more on the statistics and just the disease process itself, uh, where I felt that I wasn't being offered even a discussion or opinion on what should be of how I should be treated. And it wasn't actually anything because, you know, in the perspective of oncology, he's, he's, he's a fantastic oncologist and very pragmatic. I think that that kind of carried itself in, a, in my situation, which was I was looked at as a young budding physician and so therefore, maybe that was the thing that kind of was focused on more on the practicality and the pragmatic of what my staging was and what was the next treatment. And, and we still didn't have all the pieces of the puzzle at the time. So making these, these judgments and statements, however true in the statistics, we still were pending certain important information, which was the genomic testing and which kind of also highlighted uh, an issue that I felt uh, was really important because I was a South Asian male who is a non-smoker and with, you know, in my twenties actually having this diagnosis, I felt that there needed to be more testing and genomic testing in my, in my story, in my clinical story. And he, he wasn't discussing that with you or he was? Yeah, he, it, it was kind of still, it was an afterthought. And 
I think that that was a moment where I was lucky and fortunate to have also a brother figure who was also a physician as well. And kind of say to me that if you feel that you're not being heard, you should see second, seek second opinion and see if that's a better fit. That was the thing that shifted my even my thought because generally uh, what attending says to me is usually gospel to me as a medical student. And now, you know, when I was a resident as well, but I think it was that moment where seeking that second opinion was actually the thing that changed my trajectory of my cancer care, my cancer journey. I really do believe that. But your, but your second, the reason you, you, you sought the second opinion was not inadequate care. It was just you did not feel there was that connection. Exactly. And I think that is the most important aspect of the story because it was not about the care itself because that is that's farthest from the truth from his care was 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 great. However, our our connection was not aligned. Um, I felt there was some elements of the lack of advocacy in my situation and I and not having all of the pieces to the puzzle and making a statement which is you have six to eight months to live was really hard for me to hear and uh, even though it is a pragmatic statistical truth and uh, from his lens and from his perspective so I think that was the reason why I seeked a second opinion. And, you know, in fairness to you, though, I mean, he basically gave you this number and you felt yeah. it was provided without adequate, complete information. I mean, you felt there's more to the story and don't give me numbers until you get all of your facts straight. Yeah. And I think that's the most important aspect in, in order for us to understand patients of how they're feeling or what they're dealing with. It's not actually not providing them all this information that is really important. It's actually, first of all, having 100% of the information before we make a statement. And the second thing is aligning to their goal of what they want to accomplish and of just getting to know me instead of just saying the practical, you know, pragmatic truths. And I think if that we first focus beyond, if we pull back the curtain and we see that there's a there's a patient here that's a human that has these aspirations and has these dreams can we actually meet that metric by hearing what they actually want to accomplish and then after that by having 100% of our information deliver our message so that we can get a better disposition and an optimized plan later on and that's the most important uh, aspect that i do believe that shared decision making is really important in oncology and often not talked about, you know. How did you find the second opinion? Uh, did you just rely on your friends, colleagues? Like, you know, because obviously you don't know him or her. You just asked around, how did you decide which uh, or who, which physicians you're going to, which physician you're going to see? Well, I was really fortunate because my older brother had some affiliation with a connection to a uh, prominent thoracic oncologist. And I was privileged enough to actually get a faster appointment. And luckily, I 
I still remember that moment of meeting my oncologist and saying, okay, this is the person that really meets my metric, uh, not because there was any change of this treatment plan, but she understood and heard me of that. She just understood and heard me so much more of what I was trying to do. And I still remember that as a life-changing moment of the first question she asked me was, uh, when are you applying for residency? And I was kind of shocked and thrown back because here I'm I'm expecting someone to just be very pragmatic and, and practical of telling me the statistics, but uh, she, she didn't focus on that. She focused on what was my goal? What was my alignment to my goal? And then saying what was the next treatment plan or treatment course that could get you back into medical training, that could get you back into medical education. And uh, that to me was tremendous. Yeah, it's sometimes very difficult to um, to define that human connection, you know, but it's you 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 know it when you feel it. It's it's hard sometimes to put it into words, but it's either it's there or it's not. And I, and I do think it's so important between a patient and a doctor because they are seeing you when you need them the most and you got to trust them. Yes, I completely concur with that statement. Uh, as, as when I was in internal medicine residency and I was uh, often sitting and reflecting with my my opinions or my treatment plans, not I, you know, not having the full information and going and pulling the curtain and and saying this is the plan or this is what we're going to do, is you know not aligning to the patient's goal. So the first most important thing is obtaining all the information possible, and even from the specialist as an internist at the time, and then coming in with that approach of saying, what is it that they want to, how do we meet their metric for their care? And oftentimes that will get exactly what I said, the best disposition and outcome for discharge and for outpatient care or whatnot. So then she uh, started you on therapy. Um, is that what happened? Uh, yes. Yeah. So she started me on, at that time, my genomic testing came back. I was found to have uh, ALK-positive uh, non-small cell lung cancer. I was started on a targeted therapy, and I was able to get back to my education. Yeah. And are you still on that treatment now? No, unfortunately, uh, you know, it actually uh, failed uh, after, I believe, I think around maybe 10 months or so. It failed, and then I had to start receiving uh, systemic chemotherapy and at that time. And during that time, I started to receive systemic chemotherapy. After, during that course, there was an, uh, an option to uh, get off standard of care, routine standard of care, and receive uh, another targeted therapy at that time. On a clinical trial, you mean? On a phase one clinical trial, yeah. On a phase one, um, tell me about this conversation that you, you and your oncologist now that drug failed after 10 months of therapy, 
you start on chemotherapy and there's appears to be some other drug that came on, but you had to stop the treatment and get on a clinical trial. And, and phase one clinical trial is probably not something that you had thought you would be on. Um, how did the conversation go? If you can go back in memory to that discussion that you had with your oncologist about the clinical trial. I was scared. I, I remember hearing uh, her bring up the idea and I was a little bit fearful saying, hey, we are already on standard of care treatment. Let's uh, continue these um, you know, other cycles. And she said to me, I think this would be the best case for us. That was the moment. Uh, this is the best treatment solution for us. That I think that this will really effectively help you. Um, and and it was a big leap of faith, you know, to take that to drop standard of care to join this clinical trial. I still often think about why did I do that? And I and I think it was really on the element of trust. She said, hey, this will get you back into the clinic. This will get you back into your training. This will get you back into focusing on what you need to do, uh, what you need to uh, to accomplish. And by doing so, uh, yes, you're going to be having to come in once a month for this, you know, for optimization and just making sure that all the labs are good and whatnot. But uh, this will help you uh, get to the next end result. And I was so fortunate for that because that's the therapy that I'm currently on and and I'm and it's 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 working it's working great. It's wonderful. I have no evidence of disease. How long you've been on it, Amish? Hmm. Let me think. It's okay. I mean, but it appears to be like several years. Yes, several years. I would say several years. Yes. So congratulations, obviously. This is amazing. I, I'm mm -hmm. happy to hear that. But when she was telling you about a phase one clinical trial, is it fair to say that a phase one clinical trial is not the type of trial that you can guarantee it's going to work or it's going to really be the one that's going to get you in clinic. I mean, a phase one clinical trial, usually we still don't know how effective they are. That's why they are in phase one. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little bit surprised when she said to you that it's going to get you this, get you this, get you this. Seems like she was more certain it's going to work. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I think she really understands the the ALK tumor biology and she felt that this was a very good target TKI that could uh, prolong my survival and felt that way. And and uh, again, she always says to me, I am still an anomaly of, of most patients that are, you know, that have received this TKI and, and I'm super fortunate to be continuing on this treatment. Yes. Because you could have, I mean, technically speaking, when you go to Google and, and Google phase one clinical trials and how they are designed and their dose finding studies. I mean, they're basically looking at the mm -hmm. maximum tolerated dose and, and you could have easily declined participating in the clinical trial and say, I'm going to stay on self-care. I don't want to be on a phase one experimental therapy. What 
made you decide to get into a clinical trial? Because I truly believe in the research. I do believe that research saves lives. And it also, what I think is the most important aspect is that if you're lucky and fortunate to join a clinical trial, it also, it doesn't preclude you from standard of care treatments after. So if you actually are lucky to obtain accrual and are, you know, not excluded from the trial that, and if you feel that your oncologist's perspective is saying this can actually help, it's, and you feel comfortable with, with that decision, you, it's so, you know, it's okay. It's a scary journey to take that leap of faith, but from that perspective, I felt very comfortable with how self-assured my oncologist felt about it. And, and I'm happy that I actually did listen. <laughs> so now, um, how often do you see her? Is it like, is it, are you seeing her quite often? Have you discussed, for example, the possibility of stopping the treatment? I mean, did this come up or not really? Because it's clinical trial. So I don't believe you're probably allowed to stop it. Well, I actually, it finally got received to become FDA approved, the medication. And can so- Can you tell us what the medication is? It's actually um, seretinib. Okay. Yeah. So, and it received FDA approval. And when that happened, I actually uh, continued to continue to take it as a, as a regular standard of care treatment. This is amazing. Um, so then you decided to apply, obviously, for the fellowship that you mentioned. Um, how how did the experience that you've had as a, with the first oncologist, the second oncologist, being in a clinical trial, shape how you take care of patients? I mean, as a medical resident, you obviously took care of patients. Uh, I presume now you're not seeing patients because you're in a research fellowship, but you will once you do the hospice and palliative care fellowship. How how is this affecting how you actually interact with patients day in and day out? I think the most important aspect that has often I like to highlight is that a lab test is not just a lab test for a patient. A scan is not just a scan. There's so much more nuance that happens. And we have to be very judicious in the choices that we actually do. The second thing is, is that we also have to remind ourselves that we receive a consult or we receive to see a patient in our clinic. And we have to, before we knock on that door, before we pull the curtain, we come back with a list of array of order sets that we have or things that we're going to do to make sure that this patient is uh, taken care of. But in order for us to to optimize them, we have to hear first what is it that's really driving them to be here in this clinic or driving them to be in the emergency department. And once we do that, you know, and we pull back the curtain, by meeting that metric of hearing them, I think that will change how we actually, what, what tests we order what things we are going to do. And if we do that, they're gonna be so much more happier 
about their own medical journey and the result of their diagnosis. It's not just a diagnosis that's written in the EMR. It is something that they feel that they've owned and they actually can start advocating for themselves. It's more focused on patient advocacy in that sense. You know, our experience shapes how we really conduct um, uh, our practices and how, you know, what we actually see. In your fellowship that you are starting at Memorial Sloan Kettering, what is that you talked about the theme of the obviously uh, connection with patients and, and, and quality of life and things like that. But how is that going to be implemented uh, on the ground? Do, do you have an idea? You know, how does the curriculum look like? I mean, when you interviewed, you probably investigated that. How are they going around addressing that particular element of the human connection? Well, I think that's what's so important is that they have effective communication workshops that actually optimize uh, patients that, you know, fellows that are actually going to be uh, focusing on palliative medicine in the lens of cancer patients. But also what I really um, am truly blown away about Memorial Sloan Kettering is this idea of the one, two, three project, which is that every cancer patient that actually comes through the door actually gets to see uh, palliative medicine uh, specialists if they would like to, to understand what their goals and how to align to their goals. And I think that's really the necessary idea to understanding how we are going to look at a person in a 360 degree perspective, not just the diagnosis itself, but also just how do they deal with their day to day. Obviously, your experience with the first oncologist probably underscores that we could do a better job in communication. Where, where's the breakdown? I mean, why why are we not doing a good job in communicating with patients, in your opinion? I think it's hard to say because it was just, it's, it's hard to define exactly how you said it. Uh, it's a feeling, but I think that the breakdown is before we make a comment, or before we make a kind of statistic, a statistic diagnosis on what is the statistics, I think we have to have all the information first. And that will actually help the patient to understand themselves. And understanding how do we advocate for our patients, even in a space of, of a terminal illness? How do we do that? I think that why I say that question is we have to constantly remind that question because that question will change how we effectively communicate. Um, understand that this is a terminal illness that is going to be defined, that's going to define their life. And how would you, as, as the person receiving this information, how would you like to receive that information with all the knowledge that we do know as physicians ourselves? So I think that's really important. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more, uh, Amish. This is um, critically important. I also think that physicians are too busy nowadays. I mean, they're seeing so many patients; they are bombarded by so many things, and and that's really taken away from establishing that human connection, that human nature. And if there are ways to remind ourselves that really we are in medicine, not just for the click, 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 and make sure that we have the diagnosis code and 
but there is really an element of this that is really critical to address. I think it would be really great. Have you not thought about thoracic oncology? I would have thought you wanted to do thoracic oncology as opposed to GU oncology. I'm interested in all solid tumors. I was really fortunate as, you know, when I was uh, completing my medical school training to work under the, you know, work under Dr. Paul and, and he really highlighted the importance of shared decision-making and also quality of life. He, he's a big proponent of quality of life metrics as well in uh, the space of genital urinary oncology. And so I felt it was a perfect fit to learn under him. And um, it's, it's also been a life-defining moment of loving to loving that space and learning that there is so much more to, to learn from, but thoracic oncology, if, you know, maybe down the line, I'm not sure. It's still up in the air uh -huh. for me. Let me ask you a little bit about, about shared decision-making a little bit, because mm -hmm. there is an element that, um, it's very difficult to have shared decision-making when you have imbalance in the information between the physician and the patient. I mean, let's face it, you were a medical student, so you were in the medical field, and you probably were not well-versed with the ALK translocation of non-small cell lung cancer and the type of drugs and the percentage and everything. And, and that piece of information is critical to have that shared decision. I mean, I always feel, um, you know, a shared decision me meaning that you must have enough information to participate in the decision-making. And it's very difficult to summarize everything in oncology in a visit. I do, <laughs> I do feel that, you know, shared decision-making, if you have two treatments, for example, that the doctor prescribes the treatment and you have to choose between treatment A and treatment B and you decide based on your goals and what you need and things like that. But isn't it difficult to be, you know, how can you make the decision on a particular serious life-threatening event if you don't have the proper training? I put myself in an example. I'm in the emergency room, let's say, and I'm having a heart attack. Hopefully I won't, but let's say I'm there. I would have no clue whether they should take me to the cath lab so they could open up an artery. They do an open heart surgery. They do conservative management. I honestly wouldn't know. I mean, they could, you know, I mean, they could tell me all they want. I'm going to say, I don't know, do what you think is right. I really don't know. I mean, I don't know because I'm not well trained in cardiology. So help me reconcile that. You know, I'm a big believer in shared decision making, but at the same time, it's really difficult on the patient. It's to, 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 to participate in all aspects. I think patients can participate in some aspects, but not in everything. Help me understand that. I agree with you. Uh, not all aspects can be under fully talked about in that lens from the perspective of a person who doesn't know medicine. I understand that completely. But I do feel that if we understand what drives them to get you know what what they actually are their passions what are 
the things that they want to accomplish will actually help us make a different treatment approach or treatment strategy, whether if they actually can go on clinical trial or do they need standard of care in that setting? I mean, I think that it's hard to say because, you know, in that in that situation of an emergency of, of uh, God forbid, you having going to the emergency room and finding out that you have an MI. Yes, there is some part of you that actually has to leave yourself and say, do what you know best. I completely concur. But how we communicate during that piece, that component of saying, this is what we're seeing. This is what we would like to do. And this is the reason why and what are the complications from it. If we even just give that whole breakdown of worst case, best case scenario, it will make a patient feel so much more of the driver's seat in their care, essentially. Yeah, uh, very, very important. I, I agree with you. Um, what else did you want? Uh, you know, what led you to decide to share your story? Uh, obviously, this is putting yourself out there, um, putting your vulnerability out there, sharing your entire story with the world, and um, something triggered you that you said you know what, I'm going to write this, I'm going to let everyone know. Was there something that led you to decide to share your story? I felt that um, my perspective was quite unique. And, you know, as I was growing to be a physician, I also kept, I was, I was also a patient during this whole perspective. And I really felt that it highlighted this aspect of oncology that's often not talked about um, the idea that this special bond that is created through every oncologist or doctor to their patient and and i'm actually an outlier but not really um i feel that if we align to the milestones that the patient has and a better outcome can happen. And I'm a, I'm a true testament of that. I'm glad you shared your story, Amish. Um, I learned a lot from you. Um, I think you have uh, so much resilience, perseverance, humility. And um, I, I think that um, it, it's amazing to get to meet you in person and then to learn from you how important that is. We all stand to be better doctors and better communicators just by simply reading your piece in the Journal of Clinical Oncology and just listening to you and learning from you. Um, so I appreciate you sharing your story. I appreciate you coming on the show and just spending some time with me. I'm truly appreciative of, again, thank you so much for this opportunity. And again, uh, I'm just honored to be here. Thank you. Good luck to you. You're going to continue to do well. And uh, I look forward to learning more about your accomplishments at Memorial and then subsequent fellowships, my friend. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I appreciate you tuning in and being part of the show. Special thanks to Dr. Amish Govindarajan for spending some time with me on Healthcare Unfiltered and to his mentor, Monty Pal, who was instrumental uh, in introducing us to each other. 
Amis shares his story at the Journal of Clinical Oncology. You could actually click on the uh, in the show uh, notes and you'll be able to read this amazing article. Um, I also want to um, ask you to subscribe to Healthcare Unfiltered, rate the show, and watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to let your friends and colleagues know about this show. I'm sure there are topics that they would enjoy. And if you are an avid listener to the show, you can always let me know that you want to get the amazing Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt. I will mail that to you anytime you want. Well, I would like to leave you with two sayings. One is by Omar Khayyam. Be happy for this moment. This moment is your life. And the other one by Gandhi. Happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. Until next time, take care.